0: Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Ministry Minded Podcast, a show that seeks to marvel at the mercy of God that meets us in our messy ministries. I'm, of course, your host, Brad Gray. I serve as the senior pastor of Stonington Baptist Church in Paxinos, Pennsylvania, and uh, I am so thrilled to be sharing this episode with you today. It's an episode I've been trying to get together for a little bit. Um, I am thrilled to be joined by my longtime friend, uh, the Illustrious doctor, Abby Tyler Todd. He is a doctor now. He got his PhD uh, recently. He uh, successfully defended it, and now he's actually publishing books off of his uh, research that he did on his dissertation. So uh, I am just super thrilled to. I'm just super thrilled that I get to know Abby. He's just an incredible thinker, uh, a rich historian in terms of being able to put. Church history, but I would say predominantly Baptist history in a context which, uh, is also, which is insightful, but inspiring, but also sometimes convicting. And so I just appreciate, uh, Abby's ministry of history, if I can term it that way. Um, so yeah, I get to talk to Abby and we're talking about one of his new books uh the moral governmental theory of atonement, re-envisioning penal substitution, in which uh Abi spends goes he goes to great lengths talking about the moral governmental theory of the atonement, which is a theory that you are probably not familiar with, as I wasn't before I opened the book. Uh yet there are a lot of Christian church figures, I should say, that adhere to this particular uh view that you would be very familiar with and uh um you would probably be surprised that they hold to that particular view but when Obie explains it it kind of makes sense um it uh, at least it makes sense in terms of what was happening um in the United States during the uh, the particular uh decades that this particular view was popular and, uh, he puts it into a context which allows for a re-examining. See, w- what I love about this book, and I'm just gonna kind of spoil, uh, my thoughts and feelings on it, mainly because my, I reviewed it on Wednesday, so you can read my review. So you already know that I love the book, but, um, what I love is not necessarily, um, that he's reintroducing this doctrine to, uh, the world, so to speak, but more so he's using this Doctrine, which has fallen by the wayside, fallen out of popular favor, to sort of re-examine his own sort of beliefs on the atonement and sort of put him... He puts himself under the microscope, so to speak, and and uses this doctrine of the moral governmental theory to uh reevaluate and also to make more precise his own particular uh feel um, beliefs regarding the atonement. So uh that's what I appreciate. I think that's the legacy of this book, if I can already say that. I know it just released, but uh I think that's what it does, and I think that's what Abi intends to do, is to just get Uh, the reader's mind working in terms of thinking critically um, about, you know, the doctrine that he's reporting on, but also the doctrine that you might hold dear um, in terms of what you believe about what Christ did on the cross. So uh, I think it's a helpful book in a number of ways. And we go into that, we talk about a bunch of other stuff. It was just really good to talk with, with Abhi and catch up with him. He took over a new church uh, last year. He was called to a church in uh, Southern Illinois, and so I'm just really uh, I'm just thankful to know Abi, and I'm I'm thankful that we've uh, been able to make um, uh, make a lasting uh, friendship. He's a dear brother in ministry, and so I'm glad we could just. Uh, Shoot the breeze and uh, catch up and you know talk about uh, the gospel, which is what we love to talk about so anyways, enjoy this conversation uh, well, before we get there, let's uh, just hear a word from today's sponsor and then we'll get into get into the show. Do you like coffee? I know that you do, and that's why I want to tell you about fresh roasted coffee. Fresh Roasted is a locally owned and operated coffee house right here in central Pennsylvania that is committed to providing the highest quality coffee on earth. They do so by sourcing only the freshest coffee beans and by using the most eco-friendly roasting technology in the world. Fresh Roasted's USDA certified organic coffee beans ensure that your coffee is consistently regulated at each stage of the production process and completely free of GMOs and harmful synthetic substances fresh roasted coffee Roast their beans per order with immediate packaging and shipping directly to your door meaning that you get to experience fresh coffee at its peak drinkability that's what i like i was introduced to fresh roasted coffee soon after moving to central pennsylvania and i'm so happy i was because i think it's literally the best coffee out there their blackbeard's revenge blend is out of this world good whether you use a regular drip coffee maker or a pour over or a French press, however you get your coffee fix, make it fresh roasted. Go to the link in the notes for this show and use the offer code GRACE10 at checkout. That's offer code Grace10 at checkout to get a discount on your next order. Okay. Uh now for my conversation with Abi Todd. Enjoy. Well, Abi, it's been about a year since we last talked on the podcast, we've been chatting a little bit um, here and there throughout the last several months. But uh, last time I was talking with you, you were on the precipice of going to Illinois to take a new church um, under the call of God. And so uh, how has that been (laughs) uh, transitioning into a ministry during a global wide pandemic? (laughs) Yes. That
1: that's right. As I, I forgot about that. We talked just about before we left. Um, yeah, it's it's been once in a lifetime experience. Hmm. We we came in and really even the even the interview process was very unique. Didn't really get to meet most of the church in the way that we wanted. Didn't really yeah. get to see services as they were. But I'll tell you the 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 pandemic. It's it's I got to be careful to phrase this the right way. It's it's a completely regrettable, completely unfortunate, and would never wish it um, upon us again. And would never uh, think that it was. You know, obviously people have borne the brunt of it in different ways. That said, there has been a silver lining, and and. In the church, and especially in ours, hmm. um, I would say that of all the COVID horror stories that we hear, I would say that Third Baptist Church, um, and we we we've experienced some of God's grace through it. Um, not because it wasn't hard, but because our I was brought in called. Called by God to Third, um, and and really sought by uh, a, a group of men at this church for the you know for the real express purpose of reforming the church, hmm. and so it, it is a it is a pure revitalization effort here at Third. Um, it you know, and that's not to say we're not keeping a lot of the good things this church has done. Um, you know, we're not just reforming everything and changing everything. However, COVID provided an opportunity for us to kind of press pause and to really re-examine basically all of our ministries here at 3rd. Mm. Um, and uh, and really just to kind of take things slowly. Um, I kind of compare it to like, I don't know if you're too old to remember Saved by the Bell episodes. Um, Zach Morris used to press pause and everybody would, everyone would freeze and then he would would explain something. I feel like I'm Zach Morris and (laughs) that's kind of how we're, you know, we, we came about COVID is, I mean, churches with different ministries and different functions and different habits and traditions. I mean, yeah, a church is an organism and it Mm -hmm. runs fairly quickly and a lot of us don't realize just how difficult that can be for a new pastor to come in and you know mm. and, you know try to come in with the same energy and relationships and that kind of thing and and that's just not possible most of the time well covid really was the silver lining with covid was I got to kind of instead of putting on my administration hat first I got to really put on my relational hat even though it was inhibited a lot of times by you know maybe not being able to visit people to hospital maybe not being able to go over people's houses, I really was able to kind of put more of a an emphasis on you know convening leaders, talking about the long term, getting of on the same page, being of one mind. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's one way that God has really blessed yeah. our church is. Uh, we were able to push reset on a few things and and then come out gradually as we were kind of emerging from covid and I think that the, the Lord did that on purpose at least for our church,
0: yeah, uh, and so that's really helped us in that way. I've talked with a lot of pastors, and that seems to be like a general consensus is that they've been you know by nature of the pandemic they've been forced to press pause. Which has allowed them the space to uh, reevaluate um, either ministries that they've held or ministries that they have uh, not even started yet and determine the trajectory of their church. So it's almost like everyone's been given an opportunity to re envision what their church is and where they want to go. And so that, that's kind of a blessing for you <laughs> since you were kind of stepping into that very position. Uh, and the nature of your role. So that's, um, it's interesting, not a lot, and maybe you can, if you can, if you have more to share, uh, I would love to hear it, only in the sense that you don't hear a lot yet, I think, um, about this supposed silver lining of a pandemic. And again, I reiterate all of your um, cautions per se, only in the sense that it hasn't always been bright and sunny. (laughs) But in retrospect, I think we can always be able to see the hand of God at work, and perhaps it's too soon to see that handiwork but uh um it, it is it's good to hear at least some initial benefits of something that has been totally abnormal and uh, uh, obstructive many times <laughs> yeah yeah um,
1: i I hope to hope that that my our story can be one of of many that we eventually here after the pandemic passes. um, Yeah, we, we really, and, and, and again, third has just like every other church, you know, we've, 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 we're still facing challenges. Um, Like for instance, here in two weeks, we're finally getting back to the Lord's supper, which has just been way too long. Mm. Um, So there, I mean, there's, there's essential things that we still have to, you know, reintroduce and kind of come, come out of this thing, uh, getting back to quote unquote normal. But, um, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think, uh, for, for third, which was a church that was really, I mean, there's just a lot of really faithful people at third, a lot of great leaders, a lot of great servants and they were kind of hungry to kind of make kind of reprioritize some things and and restructure things and simplify things. And uh, COVID did allow us to do that um, in a way that maybe we wouldn't have been able to. Um, so even though it was an awful um, tragedy upon our, our world, um, you know, that's not to say that God hasn't been doing some great things. Um, and, um, and so we're, we're thankful that the Lord has been able to allow us to, to press pause and to, you know, to, to supplicate and to seek his will. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of times we get too busy as churches and as pastors and we're, we're always worried about the next thing that we're doing and the next ministry and the next program. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, COVID really forced us to you know, hopefully forced a lot of pastors to stop, to, you know, to, to pray, to wait upon the Lord. And, and that, that's been, I believe that's been very beneficial for, for our local congregation.
0: Yeah. Same. Like I've had some conversations with some, some of my uh, elders here at, at my church, just in the sense that there was like a natural, like, downshifting if I can say that in terms of like what you're doing ministry wise. And Mm -hmm. I've been feeling sort of the effects of, you know, now's the time to like upshift again, (laughs) change Mm -hmm. gears and to get a little bit more assertive in terms of what we're doing. Um, Like, you know, we've been planning and talking perhaps, you know, about ways that we're going to change our ministry focus or whatever So now's the time to kind of like implement that as things are opening up Um, because I don't know about you, but I'll just say personally from like a pastoral sense, I've felt this like, I felt like this, there's this mode that I'm stuck in almost of like survival where I'm just trying to like make it through the next week, (laughs) Mm -hmm. which doesn't kind of lend itself to. Uh, any sense of like longevity? I, I think, I, I don't know if you felt that or not.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. The survival thing. I mean, it's, it's every time I
1: come home after a service to Kelly and we're usually making lunch for the kids and yeah, I just look at Kelly and go, well, this is one more week that we've <laughs> been able to minister to the saints and, um, one more week that we've been able to deliver God's word and to convene and to fellowship it it's not that's not that every week is a a burden, but it's um yeah the, the, there has i think there's been just uh there's just been new challenges that it, it just yeah. by the time you get to the um, by the time you get to Sunday, it's like oh man. I, I really hope that we can fuel our souls and, and get filled up. And, um, I, I think each time we get through a week, um, I, I think there's more of a sense of, you know, Oh, wow. God's really brought us through this. And, um, so yeah, it's definitely, definitely, uh, harder, I mean, it's, it's, mm. it, it's 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 hard work especially getting everyone on the same page yes we've had our mask <laughs> policy issues uh, but i've been really proud of my of our church uh, i i i have commended our church several times from the pulpit and that's not, again we have our issues um, but our church has really not really made masks the mask thing a big issue i don't know why that is i mean they're hmm. they're, they're they're sinners um, so it's not like they're you know, you know, perfect people, but uh, the personalities at our church, uh, have just, uh, in the godliness that some of our leaders, I think have, they've just led by example and just not made it an issue. (laughs) Um, so I've been thankful for that. Uh, I think our primary issues have been just about, um, kind of restructuring. We've had some people, you know, just some leaders either transition into other roles or step down. And, um, and I think our, our primary issues have been about leadership, um, hmm. where, where people are called to be, uh, how to, how to, how to kind of facilitate, you know, discerning where people are called and things like that. Um, so ours, ours, um, Again, uh, most of our issues, I think, weren't COVID related. Really, hmm. um, I, we're really unique. I, I the more I talk, I'm just I'm telling you, our Third Baptist Church just had. I, I think Third has been through some things that it almost seemed like not to say COVID was nothing, but COVID, Third was was staring at some obstacles that it almost made COVID look secondary. Hmm. Um. And, um, and so I think uh, our people have really responded to COVID in a good way. Uh, And our people are really, you know, um, just, we're just in the midst of some big transitions. And I think next to that COVID really didn't seem as daunting. Um, And, and again, I just think that's just the nature of church revitalization. Yeah. I guess, now, I guess, I guess the one way yeah. I should, uh, one way I should say it is if I had come, if I had come to a church that was like at like peak, peak attendance and had like record membership and I was following a pastor who was like a legend and then we had COVID. Oh, my goodness gracious. I think that would have been completely different. (laughs) Um, And that's nothing that's not to make light of my predecessor or what the church was in. But the church was just at a third Baptist church was at a crossroads, Mm. um, like a lot of churches are. And um, and so I think one way or another, this church was going to have to kind of press pause and make some really big decisions. And I think COVID just allowed that to happen.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good way to to view it, especially as you've engaged in a revitalization. Um now <laughs> a lot of people probably have like differing opinions on what that means. What does what does revitalization mean to you? And that, uh, that's a, like a stupid question, but like what does it mean to you but also how have you like implemented that definition into your context in terms of like, how am I revitalizing this storied church uh, into where we think we need it? We want it to go or where the Lord wants us to be, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, I think one of the, one of the first things in church revitalization is your relationship to your leaders uh, leadership development, um, you know. As Baptists, we often think that you know, if it's you know, that's it's, it's got to be the people first or the grassroots, you know. Um, but you know, the the church will go as the leaders go. Mm-hmm. Um, and a church with great leaders is usually a thriving, healthy church. Um, not necessarily so, but um, I, I think. Uh, Church Revitalization has really been, uh, at least in our context, has been about really getting to know leaders, um, getting to, you know, hear from them, getting to hear their heart, um, you know, everything from setting a vision, setting a direction. Uh, here at Third, we, I've just constantly pounded into our people three ideas. We're going to get simple together and healthy, simple, together and healthy. That's, they, Mm -hmm. I always pound those three concepts into them. Uh, and so they know, you know, they know by now, if I'm, if I make a decision, one thing I told, I tell them all the time is you're not going to, you're not going to agree with every decision that I make, but you will know why I made it. Um, and I think Mm -hmm. you're not in a, in a, in a church, you're not owed, Having, you know, getting your way every time, but you are at least owed an explanation. Uh, and I can always assure my people that they, if they have questions, that they are they, they, there's a that we're going to foster an atmosphere where they feel free to ask their questions and to see and to have them answered. Um, and so, you know, we've we've changed personnel since we've been here. Um, probably not going to get into that. Um, but you know, I've had to make some very hard decisions and try to change the culture here. Um, you know, we, we, we're just, we're going to, we're going to be people of God's word. We're going to let our yes mean yes and our no mean no. And we're going to, we're going to be people of integrity and we're going to hold each other accountable and we're going to encourage one another. And we're going to, we're going to try to practice the law of God. Um, we're going to give grace, um, but we're going to have a high standard for our leaders. And if you can't be, if you can't hold yourself to that, uh, then you shouldn't be a leader. Um, and I think that's, that's been probably, I mean, obviously there are many facets to church vitalization, but in our context, it's been about who are the people who are called to shepherd the flock, who are our teachers, who are our servants, um, who has a, who has a passion to step up and, and, lead in this way? Um, so it's been about identifying leaders, getting to know leaders, um, loving them, letting them know where we're going, why we're making the decisions we're making. And, um, and so that's just a little piece of it, I guess, leadership development.
0: Yeah. And, I would imagine that that's both easy and hard at the same time. Easy, yeah. well, maybe not easy, but like you're at least afforded this opportunity to to do that in a way that makes sense. Only because as as we've been talking about this this natural pause on everything kind of enables you to do that a little bit easier, I think, than if everything was just churning and, uh, and everything was just operating at you know business as usual, so to speak. Sure. Um, now, maybe that's like the pastoral side, but maybe, and I'll will put you on the spot a little bit. What have you learned, maybe like personally, through these months, as not just like as you know, COVID was starting, and then as you've transitioned into this new uh, place of ministry? Like, have you seen anything in your in yourself, or like in your own sort of like preaching ministry that has been uh, more prominent per se, or or anything like that that you've kind of like noticed um, throughout these months or so.
1: Um, I think I've been more. I think I've been more dedicated to trying to do everything by the scriptures. Mm. I know that's. I know that's very generic, but um, <laughs> you just if you're going to if you're going to preach expositionally and hammer home the the supremacy and the priority of God's word then you have to be careful to try to make all of your decisions biblically and that includes you know for instance we've we've had to we've you know i've had to have church discipline conversations where you know, we have to make sure we have two or three witnesses. We have to make sure we give people grace and we give people a second chance. Um, we have to make sure that, um, you know, we have to make sure that our, you know, we're that I'm not just making my decisions um, autocratically. Um, that I have to, I seek counsel. Um, you know, so there's a lot of. I mean, God, God and his word, especially in the Pauline epistles, you know, God has just so much to say about um, not just polity, but um, about shepherding God's people and how to do that in a loving, uh, law abiding way. And um, so, you know, it, it's, it's, there's been, I mean, even, even like last week or two weeks ago, you know, there was someone that just did something that was, you know, wasn't very nice. Um, And we just had to make sure that, you know, the way that we addressed that issue was in love and that it wasn't just between me and that individual, that, you know, we brought in, you know, a a second party so that we, you know, so that there could be two or three witnesses. Um, So I, I think there's... I just think there's um and, and and we're making decisions right now about, you know, transitioning. Uh we've got a you know, a, um a worship minister vacancy and so we're going to have to, you know, I was just talking with uh, our our leaders this this week about, you know, next steps, what they thought, you know. Um so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of decisions that had to be made to a church and I'm just. I just happen to be at a church right now. Like I said, that's at a crossroads, and and there's a perfect opportunity for our church to, yeah. you know, a lot of churches, you know, they they want to do what God's word says, but they then they get really pragmatic and they say things like, well, yeah, I know that, but so and so's been on staff for this long, and or you know, we've been doing this for this long, and it'd just be hard to change, or you know, we well, I like we understand that, but it'd be so much easier to do this and. Third, right now, is at a crossroads where we just, you know, it, it's me, and we've got, we have a, you know, some some part time positions coming up, and uh, we have a, you know, kind of a, a vision to pursue biblical eldership. So we're going to start here in two weeks. Uh, here in about uh, two weeks, just we're going to start a six month process of walking through as a church, what is biblical eldership? What are the qualifications mm. for biblical eldership? Um, do we have, you know, discerning, do we, you, do we have, does God, has God called men at our church to be elders? Um, who are they? Um, you know, we're going to read a book. We're gonna, I'm going to preach through a series. Um, so just, just trying to, I think what I've learned is every step along the way um you know you 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 can't pastor even though I am the pastor I, I can't shepherd God's people by myself mm-hmm. um I'm not called to do that um and God has God's got some really wise godly men here at our our local body who are called to uh to give counsel and to help me uh, shepherd the flock of God. And so I, one thing I guess I've learned is just delegating um, hmm. consulting, you know, just, just trying to give up the, give up that, that false mantle of, you know, it's, it's my church um, <laughs> and just kind of, you know, what does God say is the best way to um, is the right way to, you know, kind of, you know, flock, you know, shepherd the flock. And, and I, I you know, I'm not saying that I've uh, mastered that, but um, I think a lot of churches struggle to create a culture where, you know, the people trust their leaders and the, and the leaders give their lives for the flock. And so we're kind of just beginning that process of creating biblical polity and leadership and fostering a culture of love and trust and, um, you know, most of our problems at, at, at third are not budget. They're not money related. They're, they're trust and they're, they're about love. And um, I think that begins with the leaders. If the leaders do not love one another and trust one another and encourage one another, then the people won't. Um, and um, so we're, we're going to, we're going to kind of go through that and, you know, dis- discern the Lord's will going forward for our for our congregation.
0: Just curious, what book are you using for your elders uh, like study? I think you said you're going through a book. Yeah, well,
1: the P- our folks, the one book we're giving out to our folks is the Nine Marks book. The ch- church oh, elders.
0: That's why I How thought because you- I I'm going to do the same thing with my guys. So okay,
1: um, on my desk at the moment is. Jeremy Wren's Church Elders, Dave Harvey, the Plurality Principle, Robert Thune's Gospel Eldership, and then I have a study guide uh, by Alexander strauch just called Biblical Eldership. Hmm. Um, so there's there's I'm I have three men at the moment who I have been kind of walking with through biblical eldership. Um, they're discerning whether the Lord is calling them to eldership. I think two out of the three are pretty pretty set that, you know, are, are just caught, they're compelled by God to, to be elders. I think one is qualified. I think he's just kind of praying through the first uh, qualification, which is desire. Um, but I have three men that I've kind of identified since I've got here as potential elders. And so I call them shepherd leaders. Um, they have no, you know, they are not a committee. They have no constitutional authority. They're just three men who walk with me and meet with me once a month to help me better shepherd our congregation and to help me make the critical decisions that are needed to mm. to pastor our people. Um, and so I'm kind of teaching them what an elder meeting looks like, what it doesn't look like. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, like our last meeting, I think we talked about, you know, we've got some, uh, you know, just a a couple marital issues in our church. We're just trying to pray through that and that, you know, uh, help those people reach out to those people. Talking about some, you know some some disciplinary issues with people that don't want to be kind to one another, um, have hurt one another publicly. Um, you know, so those, the, I, one thing I say is, you know, a, 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 an elder meeting looks far more like a prayer meeting than it does a budget meeting. <laughs> um, That's, and really good. Um, That's really good. So these men are men who, you know, they're not elders. And one thing that I run into, people will go, well, wait a minute. We didn't vote on them. And I'm going, no, you didn't. And they're like, well, why are they making decisions? I said, they're not. They're just helping me make mine. <laughs> um, and it's it, it comes from that business model that people think like, okay, these people have power. Well, who gave them their power? Uh, if these are the trustees, why did I not vote on them? You know, that kind of thing. It's such a worldly conception of leadership. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I think I'm just trying to show these men and the church that, you know, as, as it says in Proverbs, you know, um, where there is abundance of counsel, there is safety Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and, uh, try to walk with these men in love and trust and show them one, show them what it takes to be an elder. I mean, they are called to be my co-pastors in some sense. Um, but also show the church that I'm not going to attempt to try to um, to tend to their spiritual needs by myself. That's just, that's just lunacy.
0: Hmm.
1: That's crazy. How could I just come in and instantly think that I know everything there is to know about the best decisions that need to be made for this flock without even knowing all their names yet. Um, <laughs> I, mean, I know their names, but uh, you know, yeah, I get your it's, point. It's- <laughs> It's just uh, like I said. We we've, we've succumbed to this worldly, which is like, okay, I don't have a pastor anymore. Get a search committee. Find this guy who has the most degrees. Oh, okay, this Abby Todd guy has a doctorate. Oh, well, he must just know what he's talking about. Well, y- okay, yeah, and I, I I know a little bit about the scriptures, but that doesn't give me the right just to come in and um, start making decisions for the future of the church without knowing the people and knowing people who know those people and. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of our plan and our how we're kind of tr- seeking to establish biblical leadership at our church.
0: Hmm. The one thing though that struck me, even though it's sort of simple, is just what you said at the beginning, which was ju- just that you're <laughs> emphasizing scriptures. Which again, to some people might sound so basic, but um, to me, it's the thing that I've tried to bring to bear in every single way, (laughs) what I mean by that specifically is that, like, for me, the thing that I've learned through, you know, I don't mean to make this sound so quaint, like the thing I've learned through COVID, but (laughs) the thing I've learned or, or sought out is just how the pandemic has been like, almost like a crucible for, do you really believe in the sovereignty of God? And Mm -hmm. that's, and, and like, the only reason why I can say that I've, learned that or I'm still learning that is only because I've like flipped through (laughs) um, a lot of different like sermon uh, outlines that I've preached and a great many of them have a prevailing theme which is that (laughs) hey there's a king who's sovereign over everything yes including this season which is not the most like novel thing to come to or conclusion to come to but it's one of I think one of the most uh, relevant only because I don't know about you, but like, I don't always think about that. And I don't always Mm -hmm. keep that at the forefront of my mind. And maybe if I'm not, I don't know if all of the people in my church are either. And I've just tried to bring that to bear. Like, what do you really believe on the sovereignty of God? Uh, because it applies to both, both sort of seasons, the seasons of plenty and the seasons of want, um, I guess that's sort of like a, a Pauline thing in the in the book of Philippians. You know, I know how to both abound and to be abased, and to find Christ as my joy in in regardless of which end of the spectrum, so to speak, I'm on in those particular moments. And uh, I don't know. I've just found like a renewed comfort in the quote the lordship of Christ. And I don't mean that in like the lordship salvation sense, but just the lordship of His of his control over all things. And um, I found a lot of, a lot of consolation in knowing that, that that is true. Um, Because if it's not true, then I think I'm in a, in a big pile of crap. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) COVID's uh, given us a
1: perfect opportunity to, to renew our faith in the the sovereignty of God.
0: Mm, That's right. That's right.
1: Yeah. I, I, I have been clinging to that. I, I think I've, um, I think we've all had to in some ways, just, just because our, our plans and our policies and our, our strategies have been ripped away from us. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, most of our ministries through COVID have been week to week, day to day. And, 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 that's infuriating for a lot of people. And I think the only thing left is that they have to either put it all in the Lord's hands and trust that he is sovereign and good or, or else drive themselves crazy trying to control the church. And um, yeah, there's, there's definitely been a freedom to, to rest in the sovereign hand of God. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And one of the, <laughs> just reflecting a little bit, like I, I preached on, um, the book of Ecclesiastes uh, a couple of months back. And I, I would say that if there's ever a relevant book to preach through in a pandemic, it's probably that one. Um, hmm. only because it, it deals with so many things that I think that are so relevant to us. And especially when things are kind of <laughs> more opaque than normal. And, uh, because the book itself is a little bit opaque in terms of how to make sense of, of life. And, and Solomon in that book is really dealing with those pressing issues and he's dealing with them in a really real way. And at least for me, that's been really helpful. That sort of vocalizing uh, one's own inadequacies at making sense of the present. I don't know. That's been really helpful to me. (laughs) That would be a wonderful book to to
1: preach through right now for for our people that's um i think we all have all felt helpless at one time or another in the last year whether even if it didn't have anything to do with covid it was just 2020 in general Mm. Um, Yeah. yeah a lot of people are i've i've um i think um i've taken a lot of heat at our church the last Three months, because um, I chose to chose to take down the American flag from our stage, and I took down the American flag from our front yard. Um, left left it up in the gym. We're a very nationalistic church here, Brad. Yeah. Um, but um, I just said, look. Um, if if this is for Jesus and, and it all is in vain and it, and it all – if if the kingdom – if Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and, and we have one mission on this earth, and that is to fulfill the Great Commission and the mission of the church, and we have to clearly articulate the gospel and defend the holiness and the lordship of Jesus over his church, um, then these things need to come down. And uh, that was not a popular decision. Um, most of our people were were, were good with that. Uh, saw the the biblical logic behind it. and um, but you know, one thing I kept coming back to to your point is, you know, it doesn't say that the gates of hell will not prevail against America. It says that they won't prevail against the church. And of course, we know that that's because it's Christ's church, not that's right Uncle Sam's church. <laughs> and, um, you know, it, and as a Baptist, don't even get me started on why we don't, why we want to have a flag on, you know, church crowns, but, <laughs> um, I've, I've really rested in the Lordship of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it's, it's painful because, uh, you know, church revitalization and trying to point people to the, that, that gospel and trying to point people to, you know, the, the supremacy of Jesus, you know, it sounds very, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, I understand that. But as soon as you put flesh on it and say, okay, well, we're, we're going to take this American flag down. Um, you know, we've had, we've had people leave our church over that. Hmm. Um, and, um, have who and and have told me so, um, And, you know, that hurts. But, um, you know, we're we're going to rest in the fact that God is sovereign, that he is good, that the gospel is enough, that Jesus is enough. And that, you know, seeking to trust in the Lord and do his will and obey the gospel is 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 going to be pleasing unto God, even though at times it won't be pleasing to man. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's been a tough thing. Um, but again, it's, it's, you know, we didn't, we didn't get into the, to the ministry to please men and to fear men. We, we fear God. And, um, so anyway, that's been, that's been something I've encountered as of late. And I just wanted to add a lot of these folks, you know, they're, they're good people, um, I told i had uh i had some some men disagree with me all three of the men who came into my office and there were three of them um mm. they were all good men they are all good men um and uh it, it it's 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 a as a pastor you know you you have to make sure that you don't just take your staff and beat the sheep you know you have to love <laughs> the sheep you know even the sheep will bite you Mm. But that doesn't mean you bite back. Yeah. Um. I think that's a true shepherd's heart is to love your sheep even when you disagree with them. Um. You know, I, I think I told him. I said, you know, my my granddad was a Marine who fought in World War II, and my my brother is a Marine who fought in Afghanistan. I said, you know, I think my granddad would not agree with me. He has he has since passed from the earth, the first the first obby. He would probably not agree with my decision. He would probably have wanted that flag there, uh, but my my brother, it, make no bones about it. He he says you know the, the the American flag has no business in a church where Jesus is king. Um, and it it, it just gets down to it. It reminds me that you know there's just a lot of. As pastors, I think we have to walk a very fine line between showing appreciation for the things that people have done for this country and for the the religious liberty that we enjoy, uh, and also making sure that we worship the living God in spirit and in truth and put no idols before Him. Um, and that's hard to do, um, and I'm not saying that I've done it perfectly, but I have I have sought to do that since I've been here.
0: Mm. well i I think that's a really good point to make only because i i haven't taken down a flag per se but i've tried to articulate in you know a number of ways just the fact that the mixing you know if if politics and christianity were a cocktail it would be the like the worst tasting cocktail ever Um, (laughs) and i think it's if I'm allowed to carry the metaphor even further. It's a cocktail that's served to us I think by you know the the prince of the power of the air it's It's not one that comes i think from uh from Christ. It's definitely something that we have intermingled uh, on our own in terms of trying to figure out you know who we're going to be aligned with and I say that because I think it's a really relevant conversation to have this idea that we recognize the lordship of christ is one of those things that i think prevails in terms of uh the very resonant conversation of who's the church's authority and and you take that for what you will in terms of you know governmental overreach or what have you and i think that's something that's really resonant in terms of our current day and it's not to say that we are dismissing uh you know the nation in which we worship but it's also recognizing that there is a truer better <laughs> better kingdom of which we are a part of already right now mm. um mm. like that's a ra- reality that you know it's not consummated but it is true and it, it is real um i think that's what paul was talking about again back in that letter of philippians you know we let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. Um, I think that's what he was getting at. Um, and I think it's just a really relevant conversation to have, um, with folks of, you know, all walks of faith. And, uh, no matter how quote old you are in the faith, I think it's something that it's something that's definitely necessary. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's, a it's one that we'll have for a very
1: long time <laughs> and it's, it's, just hard right now in our country because so many of the values, traditional American values, you know, whatever that means. I mean, those, there are many things that have, you know, there are things that this country has stood for both good and bad that are being called into question. And, um, you know, I, I think that, we do live in a country that has allowed us so many privileges and our freedoms have been, have been purchased with, you know, in blood by, by patriots. Um, and, uh, you know, always being mindful of that is, um, you know, is important. And I think that, you know in america we should always you know i think even though as a baptist especially that you know there there must be a separation of church and state i do think that you know there is a sense in which you know we cannot expect the state to to promote ideals like virtue and promoting the public welfare. I I don't think we can take that for, I don't think we can expect that from our government for too long if, if we completely separate the two. Um, but I do believe that we do not ever need the civil government. We don't ever need the sword of Caesar to hold up true and undefiled religion. Mm. Um, and, uh, we can get into this later, but I, Right now I have a manuscript. Um I have a manuscript that's currently being double blind reviewed by Baylor University Press. Um and it's called Let Men Be Free Baptist Politics in the Early Republic. Hmm. Um, and uh I spent spent a while on it. Uh I, I you know, again, this was probably my last book that I kind of got to pull a lot from my dissertation. Um, but I've just I spent a I spent about a year just researching uh Baptist politics in the early United States, probably from 1776 to 1835. And it's just uh it's remarkable to see what Baptists believed about God and state then as opposed to now. Um mm. uh, and uh, I'll tell you what, Baptists would have been rolling in their graves uh, to see us uh, wave the Star-Spangled Banner at a church. I'll tell you that. Um, it, it's, it is a different time, though, and, and, and people and governments change. Um, but it, I, I, I embarked upon the research because I, I kind of wanted to get back and research about how Baptists were persecuted. And mm. how, you know, we, we take religious liberty for granted, but you know, the state of Massachusetts didn't get rid of its state church until 1833. Mm. Um a lot of people don't really remember that, but um, but anyway, it, it's just uh I, I I I do believe that there must be a place for religion in the public square, um, so long as we always remember that the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world. Um and that regardless of whoever our president is or whoever our Caesar is sitting on his throne, that God is sovereign and that and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church ever. Um Caesar doesn't protect the church, Jesus protects yeah, the church. That's right. Um and that that notion of sovereignty has to can, has to carry us through. And that's one thing I'm trying I'm constantly preaching to our people is, you know. There are a lot of people. I just had lunch with two people uh, eight days ago, and he just came out and said it. He goes, "I really thought Jesus was coming back in 2020." Mm-hmm. Now, this is a guy who. This is a guy who. He's just an average guy. He's like 65, I think. He, he he goes and lives down in Florida for two two months out of the year, and we were having lunch. And he goes, "I thought Jesus was going to come back after the election." and then I kind of laughed and a guy with me laughed and he goes, and then he goes, yeah, but now I'm thinking he'll be back this fall. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, there's that politicization, the politicization of, of our faith again. You know, it's just like, yes, yes, we must be mindful of the times. And yes, there will be a political element to, um, you know, the, the end of the age. Uh, you know, you could you could even say that you know the, um, you know the beast and and you know the antichrist will be a political figure for you know for sure. Um, but I just when I hear that I just think we are so unduly influenced by the spirit of the age. We're just so unduly influenced, thinking that you know what if we think that Jesus would have come back after this election i mean my goodness what would the christians in 1945 we think that we think joe biden is so bad i mean i'm just imagine being a christian and seeing what mussolini was doing in rome what adolf hitler was doing in germany what the red army from the north was doing in russia adding that all up and thinking to yourself I mean, if I was a Christian, in 1945, I'd have thought Jesus was coming back. <laughs> Heck, yes. <laughs> and then think about all those political. And, and, and I guess my point being, can we be? Can we? Can we not be so ignorant of history as to think that you know, you know, that suddenly our time is the worst? Hmm. Um, suddenly, it just cannot get any worse than it does now. I mean, please. Um, I, I just think the historian, I tell you, his, the historian in me, history, then the knowledge and the study of history, if it has changed one doctrine for me, probably the only doctrine that it has really affected, you know, in terms of of maybe swaying me is eschatology. It, I don't know that Ooh. necessarily my position has changed, but it really has certainly made me more humble. Um. And just knowing that, you know, God has carried the church through some really bad times. Yeah. Um, and yes, Jesus may come and he may come soon. Uh, you know, God, I mean, I hope that he does. God God willing. Um, but. The the, this this kind of hysteria and emotionalism and panic that I see in a lot of American Christians who just cannot conceive how we could ever last in a Biden presidency. Um, I'm just going, you know, this might be a perfect time to just trust in a sovereign God. (laughs) Um, I think you're right. That's uh, and I have no idea what that's like in a state in Pennsylvania, which is, uh, you know, you've got. I, I hear Pennsylvania is just like, you talk about battleground central. Um, so I'm sure you get a little bit of everything where you're at, but oh, yeah. um, where I minister, it's just, you know, it's a very red region in a very blue state and there's, you know, p- politics are at, a just ratcheted up at an all time high. And I do have very, I have some political convictions, obviously, but, um, you know, I find that in my particular ministry, in my particular region of the country, the majority of the time, I'm just telling people to stop watching Fox News and start reading their Bible.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I would say I'm I have the same sort of sentiment, only in the sense that, like, if you're getting your outlook on the world from any news outlet, uh, yes. whatever, whatever it is, it, you're going to have a really pessimistic view of what's going to happen. Um if you're getting it from those headline news sources and, uh, I've been championing to, to my folks, the same sort of message, uh, more than double the amount of time you watch the news you should spend in the word. Cause you're going to have a greatly affected outlook on, on not just the present, but the future as well. And I would say that, man, you're like speaking directly to what I've been pondering a lot. Um, only in the sense that <laughs> I think we've talked about this before, but maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But like, I, I I think we have like a sensationalized view of our present moment in history and what it means and how to go about <laughs> understanding our moment in history. And we view, yeah. like you said, like this is the worst it's ever been. And I know a lot of people who would have. <laughs> They would take a no small amount of umbrage with that uh, assertion, <laughs> and yeah. and they would say like, uh, "You guys are are kidding me, right?" And um, and it's not too, it's not that, it's not that ancient. I, I'm not, I'm not talking about you know the supposed worst year of history, which was like what like five hundred something, and I, I'm not talking about that. I'm I'm talking about just the fact that um, there's been other moments not just in church history but global history that things have felt worse and um, I don't know what that is is it I don't know what why it, I don't know if that's just something that's unique to quote our generation um, or if it's just something that's unique to humanity itself uh, I'm not sure but it, it is to me fascinating as a greatly lesser historian than, than you are to just notice <laughs> we have a really pitiful view of history. If, if we're freaking out about the end of the world, if uh, in, in due of course of these events, again, not to say that Jesus can't come back, but he says in Acts that he can come back at any time, <laughs> but you're not going to know the hour can't of the day. Um, try. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're, just, you're I've up, had man. the same sort of thinking so. <laughs>
1: Yes, and you're right. Any news outlet, any news outlet. I mean, I'm, I'm. I don't want to pick on Fox News. I, I, I any news outlet to me is, um, has to be tempered with with uh, scriptural truth and um, just a, 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 you know, a scrutinizing eye. Um, yeah, I, I, I just think, um, you know. I I too see things that are happening in our world and in our, in our nation that are troubling. I mean, I, you can't deny that. Um, You can't see what's happening right now with this, this kind of redefinition of manhood and womanhood and, um, you know, just some of the, some of the elements politically, you know, but I mean, even then, one, we have this notion as Americans that to think that if, you know, what's happening to our country, what's happening to the West is just is just kind of by extension happening to everyone else on the globe. Hmm. Um, no, that's not. Um, you know, what, what you know, the what we're experiencing here in the United States is not probably what they're experiencing in uh, Nepal, Or Mongolia or Zambia, Um, you know we're we're the church. You know we're a global people, and the church is a global church. Um, And the good news is we have the Apostle Paul writing things from the Roman Empire, which, my goodness, I mean there were unspeakable evils happening in that. uh, You know during that. That empire and that time, you know, that, that you know, I, I think really kind of in some ways mirror our own country in the sense that, you know, there was a lot of progress made in the Roman Empire and there was a lot of evil. And you could say the very same thing about the United States. Um, and if anything, we should just we should have a little humility in the way that we experience suffering, if the first, if your first response to suffering is, "Well, this is as worse as it, it this is as bad as it can get," Jesus must be coming back this fall. Um, I don't think that should be our first response. Our first response should be, "I am, I counted all joy to share in the sufferings of Jesus, hmm. and I'm going to trust that He will come back." At his appointed time, and until then, he will carry me through. And he is in charge, and he is in control. And I will trust my soul unto him, regardless of what happens. Um, I feel like that's the Christian response, not not uh, sensationalism. Hmm, yeah, um, that's right. And um, I think it sounds like you and I are kind of speaking the same thing.
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, especially too, uh, I've been preaching through. I know we're we're going a little long on this little segment, but I think it's worth it. Uh, And I want to talk about your book that, which is why we had this podcast in the beginning, but regardless, I've been preaching through the books of first and second Kings. And I came across this phrase in first Kings chapter 12, which has like just spoken to me so resonantly, which is, it comes about, um, you know, as the kingdom of Israel is, is disrupted and divided. And uh, Rehoboam, uh, the successor to Solomon is, you know, trying to mount a counterattack against the um, uh, against those who have, you know, divided themselves uh, away from the throne in Jerusalem. And then he's met by a prophet, and he shares a word from the Lord. And in that message, in First Kings chapter twelve, uh, the Lord's word says this turn of events came from the Lord to carry out his word, or as it says it in the King James, this is from me. And (laughs) just that phrase that this thing is from me has just hit me so deeply, like to the core that like (laughs) the things that appear random or out of order or chaotic are not if they are looked at from the Lord's perspective. And to me, that's like the truest definition I think I can come to um, when I talk about the sovereignty of God. It's um, something where that appears totally, uh, totally problematic is not at all problematic to him. And knowing that this situation is from him has been a relief. Not to say that there's not things that we ought to be doing in the middle of it, but it's just to say the outcome of it is already determined by one who has orchestrated it from the beginning and for me that's a really comforting thought <laughs> amen amen but we've been talking about american like ecclesiastical convictions and i think that's a good segue into talking about your recent book um which has a really long title the moral governmental theory of atonement reenvisioning penal substitution um mm. Let's just talk about it. Let's talk about the book and what – I know it's derived out of your dissertation research, but what kind of like – what was like the moment – If I, that's a silly way to say it. But what was like a moment where you realized that there's a way in which you can formulate this particular conversation out of some of the research that you did? Well, it wasn't me.
1: It was um, – <clears throat> I will probably never write a book like this ever again. <laughs> mm. Why? Why not? Not not in a bad way. Just, just the way it came about, uh, the way that I was invited to write it, and the way that I came about the kind of the 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 knowledge to write it uh, are just just probably won't ever happen again. Um, Basically, I am writing or did write my dissertation in 2019 uh, from New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I wrote it on. Um, the Doctrine of Atonement of Richard Furman, who was just a 19th century Baptist. Um, Nobody had really written a lot on his theology. And I kind of started digging around and found out that he, um, you know, he blended theories of atonement like a lot of Baptists did. uh, I started kind of rummaging around the 19th century and found out that um, a, a lot of particularly Baptists didn't always hold to like a pristine theory of atonement. It was just kind of a hodgepodge.
0: Hmm.
1: Um, it's kind of a lot of the way that their Calvinism was too. Most, most, you know, most Baptists in the South were not like, you know, high five pointers. Um, you know, they were, they were what they, a lot of people called moderate Calvinists. um, so I kind of started delving into that, um, and actually my dissertation for uh, Richard Furman is being published in uh, n- sorry next month uh, in the Monographs in Baptist History series. Well, anyway, in order to understand Richard Furman's view, I, I delved in really heavily with the moral governmental theory of atonement, which was uh, a view of the atonement – um, really stemming from the the mind of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards didn't hold to the view, but a lot of his ideas kind of took shape among his disciples uh, who kind of formed this theological movement that was known as the New Divinity. And they came up with this novel theory of atonement in the Reformed tradition called – that was kind of became known as the Moral Governmental Theory of Atonement. Uh, or as I call it, the American moral governmental theory of atonement. Uh, hmm. Hugo Grotius, who was a Dutch jurist uh, over in Europe, you know, he he held to a similar view, but this was a Calvinistic view. Anyway, long story short, I was published a couple articles. I was published in a couple of journals um, on this view in the International Journal of Systematic Theology and Scottish Journal of Theology. And some people saw that. Uh, The two editors of the series, uh, Mark Hamilton and Josh Ferris, saw these articles and basically reached out to me and said, do you you want to write a book on the moral governmental theory of atonement? And uh, I said, "Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, I, I had never really thought about writing a book on the moral governmental theory of atonement, um, but you know, no one had ever really written a book on the view itself from a systematic view, from a systematic perspective. There were a couple books written on kind of you know from the perspective of Edwards and his relationship to his disciples and kind of how they drew their views, but it was more like history um this book is really just a historical theological systematic approach to the view. Uh, I wrote this book as that you know they asked me to write a book on the the theory of atonement and uh, I wrote this book kind of as a as an introduction to the view. If anyone ever wants to understand what you know you know, Thousands and thousands of, of uh, you know, evangelicals in American history between 1750 and 1850, um, you know what they kind of held to, or 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 maybe the 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 gospel that they heard preached in the first and second Great Awakenings. Um, then I would I wanted to kind of write a book that would become kind of like the standard work on the theory. Um, And so that's this book. And um, I just basically tried to get into the new divinity mind Mm. and just try to not so much um, just deconstruct and critique the view. I wanted to if I wanted to present a book that could adequately present why these people, so many people, held to a view of the atonement in the reformed tradition that was not the traditional version of penal substitution.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Um I just could not get over that. I just could not get over how so many evangelical Christians in American history didn't, you know, identify themselves as reformed, as calvinists, but rejected um the doctrine of imputation or at least the traditional understanding of it. Mm-hmm. um i just could not get over that um and so i just this is really just an introduction into why so many people held to that view uh there were different derivatives uh different versions of the view just like there is you know the traditional penal substitution and after i started digging i i saw that they understood their view of atonement as penal substitutionary but they didn't define penal substitution in the way that Say, I do. Um, and so that's why I wrote the book. If you could say, I, I would say three reasons. One, just pure historical theology, studying an epic of history and explaining why these people held to the view they did. Number two, to demonstrate that the reformed umbrella, reformed quote unquote, the reformed umbrella is a much broader umbrella than a lot of people think. Uh, and three, uh, to show that we need to we need to really speak with theological accuracy when, when we explain things like substitution, mm-hmm. um, you know, because what you might think is substitution is substitution. But you, you don't you know, there were people who defined substitution differently uh, and they're they're conception of substitution was in fact substitutionary, but um, it was just different. And I I think this book, I I should maybe force theologians or compel theologians to speak with greater theological accuracy, because uh, one of the things that I address in the book is I actually critique Michael Horton, which I did not do lightly.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: I, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, it almost gave me goosebumps to think that I was critiquing someone like Michael Horton. Um, but Michael Horton wrote something. It was it wasn't in a published article though, and it wasn't in his systematic. It was a blog. But I came across Michael Horton when he said he wrote that Charles Finney denied penal substitution, and that's just not true. Um, it would have been more accurate of, of Doctor Horton who I think very highly of uh, it would be a more accurate for him to just simply say Charles Finney did not hold to the traditional reformed understanding of penal substitution mm-hmm. uh, because Charles Finney spoke about penalty and substitution quite often. Um, and so I think it just, you know, this is book should just try to maybe keep, keep theologians today honest about what things mean and not to misrepresent people because you can't go too far back into American history and not run into this view, mm. um, which is why I felt like it was long overdue. Um, so that was, those are kind of three reasons I wrote the book.
0: Yeah. Well, your last reason is the one that like really has resonated with me just in terms of like taking something in order to almost re reevaluate the thing that you already hold – um, was really helpful to me because the one thing by the time that this podcast posts my review of the book have posted too. And that's the one thing that I found really helpful was just the fact that you, you kept um, the tension going in terms of like where you're going to land personally as an author uh, who's examining this view. And I say that only because um, you're know, like going into it as anyone might naturally um, go into it as, uh very strong uh very strongly opinionated about a certain view or my particular belief about what the atonement does and how it should be described so as you're describing all these things without giving any sort of editorial clarification on like i don't hold to this <laughs> uh i was like when is he going to when is he going to gut punch this theory and i was i was really not uh, caught off guard, but in a really good way in terms of, like, that never really happens in the way that I at least anticipated. Um, And there was a lot of helpful, I think, discussion that comes about through the course of just uh, deciphering this theory, which so captures the American mind, as you everywhere say, um, in a way that really reveals reveals american theology in a a really distinct way um i don't know i was i was really appreciative from that aspect um aspect of the book um if you were to well go ahead if you want to comment on
1: anything well no just to add one more thing it also teaches us i love i love that that British evangelicals refer to it as American theology because <laughs> that 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 shows that there was something going on mm. in the United States that the people in Europe looked over and said okay they're 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 playing around with the atonement here um or there's something different here than what we know to be traditional calvinism or traditional reformed theology um and uh, one of the reasons I think that Oliver Crisp, who was so kind uh, to write a foreword, uh, one of the reasons I think he volunteered to write the foreword is probably just because of that. Just because it is such an intriguing view, and no one has really ever told the the story of the um, um, you know American moral governmental theory of atonement. Just um, so this this book was half history, half theology. Uh, but like you said, it it, it captures the American milieu so much that you you mm. can't, you can't study the view without studying American history. And that's why I mm-hmm. loved it. That's why I could write the book. Yeah. Um, it's, it's so, it's, it's such a, ref, it's, it's a reflection and a response to, it's a reflection of and a response to um, America between 1750 and 1850 in the, in the, the, the political, the social, economic and theological changes that are occurring during that time
0: Hmm. yeah and i've found so much benefit from examining history that way but examining theology that way but also examining my own convictions uh, under the microscope of so to speak this alternate view of the atonement which you know in some senses people might be people perhaps many I, i don't know Perhaps some Christians might think that uh, delineating between alternate views of the atonement is like splitting hairs. Um, but yeah. I think in some senses that's true, but in some senses that's not true because it forces us to, I think, really contemplate uh, the cross, which I don't think there's any but uh, ever a time when that's not beneficial. <laughs> um, but I think it also helps us really capture um, exactly what God was doing uh when Christ was when God in the flesh was being crucified. Um I don't know that's a really helpful thing to contemplate, I I would believe.
1: Yeah. Um uh, the just the sheer ability to delineate, mm, yeah. uh the ability to distinguish is not something a lot of people can do. Mm. And I'll tell you this, um even though I reject moral governmental theory of atonement as as everyone who is living does. Um, I think, and by the way, I think they're, if I had to kind of say, I would probably say their doctrine of imputation is probably the, the most, Mm -hmm. um, heterodox, the one that's really their doctrine of, their doctrine of imputation is why I took on the book because I just could not see how someone, I mean, is there a more reformed thing than imputation? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, it's like, that is the reformation, you know? And I, when I read that and I read that Edwards's own disciples, Believe that. Uh, I just was so intrigued, which is why I. Which is why I will say, um, even though Edwards will kind of go down as the most. I mean, he's just he has no he has no um, peer in in American religious history in terms of just shaping um, the theology of the age but i will say the princetonians because their confessionalism because their because their calvinism was more rigid and more defined confessionally and less dependent upon just ideas and things i think that they were able to deliver and hand down and pass down a more orthodox calvinism than edwards's disciples were Hmm. Um so I would say Edwards gets the last laugh in terms of being able to write works that are still profound and applicable to the church but in terms of passing down an orthodox tradition uh I think that one goes to Charles Hodge and BB hmm. B. Warfield and those guys because they were able you know that Edwards was a thinker Edwards was a philosopher and a theologian. You know, Hodge wanted nothing to do with that. Hodge was like, I ain't trying to do anything that's new. I'm trying to just, you know, I'm trying to deliver the faith once delivered to the saints. Um and, and Edwards was too, but but Edwards' Edwards' uh attempt to kind of, you know, meet the Enlightenment on its own terms, so to speak. I think he, I think his disciples were still trying to do what Edwards did, but they just weren't as committed to Doherty and Calvinism. And it, and it ultimately, they ended up kind of producing a, a theory of an atonement that was pretty, pretty heterodox. Hmm. Um, and so I, I think there's, You know, it's just an interesting little caveat of history. Uh, And this affects Southern Baptist history. I mean, the very first president of the Southern Baptist Convention held to this view. Yep. Um, Which is ironic because the Southern Baptist Convention now, you have to, you know, the Southern Baptist Convention has condemned any view but penal substitution. (laughs) Um, Or, sorry, restate that. They've condemned anyone who rejects or. They've they've rejected any rejection of penal substitution. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's ironic because, you know, when you when you hear the resolution to uh, uphold penal substitution. And and I think the wording in that resolution years ago was, you know, any view um, that denies penal substitution is, you know, you know, is concerning or dangerous or however it was written. You know, you, then you have to go, well, what do you do with William B. Johnson? Because, you know, he did, William B. Johnson did hold to penal substitution, but he didn't believe in the same penal substitution you did.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> so it's it's just interesting how history works. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's important to understand that if you can make those distinctions, like, you know, I've benefited in my preaching because now I i I really can speak with greater biblical and theological accuracy because now I've had to study what substitution is. I you know I, I put a I put a greater emphasis on dying in someone's place. I put a greater emphasis on, you know, reckoning Christ's righteousness to our account. Um, you know, so so I, I would say that if someone says, "What's the point? Why should you even delineate?" Well, if you can, yes, I understand. I, I would I would agree that you shouldn't get caught up in the historical theological weeds at the at the say at the at the cost of the simple gospel. But I would say that if you can understand what these men were going back and forth about then you can you can you can preach to your congregation with with more theological precision mm-hmm. um, and really emphasize you know some of the some of the jewels and the gems of the gospel that are that are meant to
0: be you know relished by Christians today yeah definitely um, your note of contention was my was the same that I had as a Baptist who's been greatly influenced by Luther. <laughs> it, it, there was no surprise that the doctrine of imputation would be the one that would come down to where everything kind of fell apart for me in terms of at least the the moral governmental theory, I suppose. Um, but I really appreciated your insights into that. And again, as you just said, like what it does for the modern theologian is Enable them, or at least it should, it ought to encourage them to be that much more precise with uh, what they say. But the things that they say, the things that we emphasize, as you said, uh, the the ideas that there's a payment made on someone's behalf and uh, those sorts of things. Because that was the other thing, too, that I was so shocked by was this idea uh that they metaphorized if i can say that the ideas of payment and ransom um yes. in the scriptures which was um <laughs> was just interesting to me that they would try that they that they tried to do that in terms of it all to me it almost like castrated the work of christ if you tried to make it like a metaphor <laughs> um and in fact yeah when you ask the question I forget which page it's on, but you asked this question, I think in relating to that conversation, how real is imputed righteousness. And I even put a little note um, beside there that just said, it's as real as Christ's blood hitting the ground beneath Golgotha's cross. (laughs) And for me, that was, it was just like, "Mm, there's no, (laughs) there's no like question for me, at least in in my mind. (laughs) Yeah. I, I just
1: there's obviously uh, there are things I critique in the book. Like I, I think my, my most poignant critique is like, like you said, the metaphorizing of the language. Um, I do think for instance, you know, that we should be careful to not completely monetize the atonement. Yeah. Um, but you just can't get around the language of scripture. Yeah. Um, if, if, if they, if, if, God didn't intend to compare the atonement to a debt then he wouldn't have used that term. <laughs>
0: right.
1: Um you know and, and so you you I mean ransom debt I mean you just you can't you know the uh, uh the wages of sin. You know it's just that they they could not their hermeneutic was not consistent. You they just they had to go over a mountain mm. of uh of language that scripture uses. Uh, that was one of my, I think that was probably my my most overt critique um but i i you know i i don't I think the the fact that they the fact that their atonement didn't actually reconcile um it was i think it was what i called it a non-saving atonement hmm. um you know that 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 one's that one's just kind of irreconcilable um no pun intended um <laughs> i just think you're you know you just can't I just the fact that they don't believe that it doesn't seem like Jesus Christ's death actually saves anyone. It's it's faith that saves, and I guess that's true. But it just I don't know. I I, I the, the, the the version of pe- the penal substitutionary atonement that I uphold, Christ's death actually secures. Yeah. Salvation. Yeah. Um, it's and, I, and so I, that that one's probably my the big critique. But the biggest is is imputation. They mm-hmm. they just that 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 ultimately dooms the the theory because you're un, you're not only undermining the very basis of reform theology, but you're you're really if Christ's righteousness is not really ours. Uh, no that's the biggest critique I give is they just, they have no doctrine of union with christ really mm-hmm. um, yep. it they if you if we're not united then 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 that means everything that goes everything that I make as my as a husband isn't isn't really my wife's um you know if you if you take a real robust doctrine of union with Christ then his righteousness must be ours and his reward must be ours yep um, yes, it's not ours per se, but isn't that just the beauty, the irony of the gospel? Hmm. Um, it's it's not ours, but it is. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's Christ's righteousness, but it's ours by faith. Yep. Um, and and so these were men. They, I mean, I think I even quoted Sidney Alstrom says these were some of the most brilliant thinkers in American religious history, and they understood these things. Um, their whole goal was to emphasize faith. Um, they were revivalists, but but ultimately, I think the most the the biggest critique I have of the new divinity is, and I think I covered this in chapters in chapter two, is they're they're speaking against the Armenians, they're speaking against the Socinians, they're speaking against the Universalists, hmm. um, and they're trying to package Calvinism. In a way that distances itself from all of these heresies or these uh, these false teachings, you just can't do that. So, you know, I guess another way of saying it is: it, sooner or later, you just got to let Scripture stand on its own, regardless if somebody who believes something that's wrong. And you just have to trust that Scripture doesn't always need to be packaged. I, sometimes mm. I think they were just they were too concerned with kind of remodeling Calvinism for the age of reason. And I think they, you know, at times you just kind of wonder, you know, did they really think maybe that scripture could really just stand on its own? Um, I, I think they gave too much to the Enlightenment and tried to do too much to the Atonement without really just kind of standing and in, in, in letting it stand on its own like like Edwards did.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think at the risk of sounding too reductionist, another thing that I noted was just like it appeared to me that their entire construct was a byproduct of fearing what grace might do and not letting grace just do its thing in the life of a believer, (laughs) which I think gets at to – which gets to the heart of what you were also talking about with like the union of Christ. That's, That's the heart to me. As we've talked about before in podcasts previous, like that's the heart of the Reformation. It's the recovery of the doctrine of assurance by union with Christ. And what that means is that you are saved on account of his work, not your own. And that includes faith. Um, uh, That was something that was very apparent in in Luther's uh, working and not just Luther, but Luther predominantly through the course of the Reformation. Uh, That's what he was everywhere asserting um that it's a work that you know comes alien to you um and and that's something that i think is that, again that was something that i just noticed throughout the work and i think again how uh, that yeah that was not
1: reductionistic to say that was very very the way you said it was very very apt
0: hmm. well it's it, i think it goes back to the this like almost neo-nomian sort of sentiment that we're, we're so afraid of what grace might do because it is this unwieldy, powerful thing that we don't have a grasp on, so to speak. Um, dare I say, uh, it looks a little bit reckless, um, if I can use that word, <laughs> um, only to say that we we fear what it might do. So we try to put all these provisos on it to make sure it does what we want it to do. And then when we do that, we are castrating grace. Um by making it something we are the arbiters of and um anyways that's just, that's yeah. kind of the thoughts that i was having as i was reading <laughs> yes yes it was um
1: responsibility they were so fixated yeah. on responsibility that they they couldn't you know i think they they seem to forget at times that you know just being, being, possessing the, the righteousness of Christ and having, un, you know, having grace doesn't necessarily turn everyone into an antinomian. <laughs> yeah, um, that's right. It's, um, you know, but it's, it's, it's ironic because they, they're still four point Calvinists. Hmm. Um, they really, then I think, I think I get that. And when I talked in the, in the ninth chapter about the legacy of, um, the legacy of moral governmental theory it, it, it was a transitionary view it, it could not hold up i mean it's like in the end you're either people either want their pure calvinism or they want their you know their their wesleyan arminianism you don't see many people wanting to go back to consistent calvinism
0: mm-hmm.
1: um but but you know people wonder people still today they go well well, if we all if they if, if everybody was calvinists back you know 200 years ago then what happened why are we all so if everyone was kind of reformed back in the day and anybody who does any kind of religious history recognizes that reformed you know tradition is is what america was largely built on uh until you know until maybe you know john wesley comes around and you know of course there there are free will baptists and so on like that but the reformed umbrella is just so large. And I have a lot of people go, well, how do we go from being all reformed, so to speak, to going to now reformed is like, you know, well, it's, it's through traditions like this one. Hmm. Um, it's there, you know, it, it didn't, it's not like Calvinism just went out with a whimper and then everyone just became Armenians. Um, the, the, the broad, the umbrella got broader and there were different species of Calvinism and, uh, then you know people kind of just starting to critique parts of the reformed tradition from within not always from without um and so i think i think that's something historically to learn from the tradition but ultimately i also tried to bring out some of the redeeming parts of the tradition i think that um even though I affirm retributive and distributive justice, I think they were on to something with public justice. I think one of the most admirable things they ever did uh they they the new divinity did not place um god 's justice and god 's goodness in opposite theological corners and I love that mm-hmm. um I think a lo- too many people do i think people you know i mean you and I both know people who could probably. God is so just and so much about, you know, satisfying wrath that they forget to preach love, um, you know. And today we have a lot of people who talk about God as love, but they don't want to talk about justice. I mean, the, the the new divinity were really, really conscious of really emphasizing both, but not feeling like God was schizophrenic, where he had to choose one day whether he was going to be just or or good. He was just just and good. Um, and I think that was admirable. Um, their their fixation on God's glory and His public witness. Uh, one thing I will say this right now in historiography and in American religious studies, Edwards is is not you know everybody's favorite right now because of you know the. the just with his view on slavery, you know, he, did, he did give his approval to slavery, owned one slave. He, he did condemn the international slave trade, but he, he did not condemn domestic slavery. Uh, but just one of those ironies of history that his, his uh, disciples, who were lesser in terms of theological brilliance and lesser in terms of orthodoxy, um, you know, his disciples became some of the most outspoken abolitionists for their time. Um, so it's 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 just one of those ironies of history that while Edwards goes down as giving us, you know, some of these treatises that we still read to this day, um, you know, it's his it's his disciples who have really kind of faded from our historical mind, who were also kind of you know and in, in who maybe fell away from orthodoxy. You know, they were also engaged in some noble enterprises themselves. Um, And I think that this book was just a reintroduction to these group of men known as the New Divinity. And Mm. uh, I hope that a lot of people will at least know who they were, learn from their mistakes, uh, try to emulate some of their strengths um, and understand that, you know, if we are to... If we are called to um, theologize and 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 defend scripture and present it clearly then we shouldn't we should be able to distinguish our conception of of uh, penal substitution from from some of the other versions that have existed in American religious history including the moral governmental theory of atonement
0: yeah yeah definitely and um, I think that's a good summation of the book I was I was really moved by it. I was really encouraged by it, just in that sense of (laughs) re-examination, I suppose, through everything. And uh, I encourage everyone to go uh, pick it up. You can find it in the link in the notes to this show. Uh, So definitely pick up yourself a copy. Uh, It's a really... insightful read. And uh, I don't mean to just blow smoke on you, but I really enjoy the way that you interact with history and the way that you interact with it in terms of bringing it into a a contemporary context. Uh, You know, sometimes guys who interact with historical citations and writings, it can get a little bit uh, heavy and uh, laborious. Uh, I would say this book is never a laborious read. And uh, that's probably the (laughs) the the most surprising thing I can say about it. Um, Thank you, so I yeah, that. I was really, I was really grateful for it. So, uh, where can people find you? Um, I know you just changed your blogging, uh, home and whatnot. So, uh, where can people find you and, and what can people be praying for you, um, praying about for you?
1: Yes. Um, well, I, as I'm kind of said a little bit, but I don't know if I I don't know if I went too deep, um, but I'm the pastor at Third Baptist Church in Marion, Illinois. Um, I'm adjunct professor of theology at Luther Rice College and Seminary um, in Lithonia, Georgia. And um, I kind of working on uh, a a few projects at the moment, just writing projects. Uh, You know, a a lot of them have slowed just because of, of, uh, pastoral ministry and in, in, mm. in that really taking precedence in my life. Um, but, uh, I still blog, uh, probably once or twice a month at obby Tyler com. Um, I do have some articles coming out. Uh, I have a book coming out next month on Richard Furman. Uh, I have a book coming out next year, um, on, uh, Jonathan Edwards's legacy amongst Southern Baptists. um, and then I guess we'll see if this this Baylor Press thing works out uh, on Baptist politics. Um, but uh, but that's that's where I blog. Uh, I, I write and and will continue to write. And uh, but I really, in terms of prayer, I, I really just would ask that um, if if anyone has any spare prayers to throw up and to, to to supplicate that they that they do so on behalf of Third Baptist Church and the saints here. Um pray for my ministry, pray for the pray for the health of our congregation and that we would be of one mind striving together side by side for the gospel.
0: That's it for today's episode. I so appreciate Abby for making the time to come on and uh, hopefully you're able to make it through all that uh, usually whenever Abby and I get together, on a podcast. It is the longest podcast that I ever do. (laughs) And uh, I like that, though. I appreciate uh, being able to do that. So uh, thank you for listening. I hope you were blessed by this one. Uh, If you are not already, go subscribe to the Ministry Minded Podcast on Apple spotify wherever you get your podcasts Uh, i appreciate all of your encouragement your notes of 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 encouragement and support and all those sorts of things keep them coming i appreciate you uh and thank you uh for all that you do and uh, i hope you have a great rest of your day blessings